Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 1, verses 18b through 26. Philippians 1, verses 18b through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this great morning. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Thank you for dying in our place for our sins, that we might have life, that we might have it to the full. Father, we thank you for Paul's succinct statement about what it means to be a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. To me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Help us to understand what that means in particular to our lives and the way that we live them out, how it impacts and affects our thinking, our hearts, our desires, our motives, our wants, our speech, and our behavior. We want you and you alone to be glorified as we listen and hear from you your words. Not that we would be puffed up with knowledge, but that we would be effectual doers of your word, bringing glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if I were to sing a jingle to you, which I'm not, but if I were to say the best part of waking up is folders in your cup, yeah. And in light of this passage, I would imagine that if the Apostle Paul heard that commercial, he would jump up from his seat and scream, You don't know Jesus! Because that is indeed not the most and not the best part of waking up. But if I were to ask you the question, what is the best part of waking up for you? What is it that You're just so excited to get up out of bed to do and to be a part of. What is it that that just gives you meaning, that that just fulfills the, the fact that you are here and that you have another breath and that you get to wake and do life again? See, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he recognized the the mundaneness of life in Ecclesiastes 1, and ultimately it's the idea that, you know, you wake and you eat, And then you work, and then you come home, and you sleep, and then you wake, and then you eat, and then you work, and then you eat, and then you go to sleep. You get the picture. And Solomon embarks on this study to see, can you find 
life sufficient here in this life under the sun without God? Can you find satisfaction? Can you find meaning? Are there things of this world without God that indeed are the best part of waking up? And he embarks to try to find that through pleasure and through possessions, through work, through projects, through higher education. And he comes to the conclusion that is so well stated by the great philosopher Mick Jagger. I can't get no satisfaction. Oh, no, no, no. But for Paul, he recognizes that indeed there is a wonderful thing to wake up in the morning for. And that is Jesus Christ. That is Jesus Christ. Living for Christ changes everything. And what we get in this passage is we get Paul's, if you call it, if you will, Paul's prison ponderings. Where... He is in prison and he is indeed in trial. And as Pastor Nate pointed out last week in verses 12 through 18, that he is rejoicing because of what is happening as a result of his imprisonment. But Paul has no idea the outcome of his predicament. He does not know when he faces trial before Caesar, will he go free Will he remain in prison or will he be executed and die? And he says, yes, I rejoice and yes, I will rejoice. And the reason that he says that he will rejoice is because he has confidence in what will indeed take place. In Christ, he has confidence that Christ will exonerate Him, that Christ will exalt Himself, that Christ will indeed be honored, the Gospel will be proclaimed. And the reason He can rejoice in that is because He's been so transformed by the Gospel that those things matter to Him. That those things bring Him joy. That those things help Him get up in the morning. That they are the best part of waking up is the fact that Christ is proclaimed, that Christ is glorified, that Christ will do what He will do because He is sovereign God. And whether I live or whether I die, it doesn't matter. Because either way, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so we see here four certainties, four certainties, imminent certainties, in which Paul puts his confidence that will help us see why he says he will rejoice. And by implication, uh, these are true for all believers. These imminent certainties are true for us all. And so they help us reorient our perspective on our trials. Because again, the gospel affects the way we think. It affects our desires and our affections, and it affects what we do. And so because of that transformation, Paul's entire view and perspective on life is completely different. And I want you to to see in this as well, though, that it is his doctrine that shapes this. In this passage alone, 
we see the doctrine of God and his sovereignty and purpose. And this shapes the way Paul sees his trial. We see the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and his role in the life of a believer. And that shapes his perspective. We see the doctrine of the church and the role of fellowship and supplication. We see the doctrine of end times and his future hope. And indeed, we see the doctrine of Christ and salvation. And the point is, is that our doctrine is crucial, especially in times of trial. He is clinging to the truth of God found in Scripture, that which has been revealed to Paul. He is clinging to that truth and that shapes and that changes and that affects the entire way he looks at his imprisonment. And so we see here four items that Paul puts his trust in that gives him reason to rejoice. And I'll give you the four now and then we'll take a look at them one by one. The first one is is that he is confident and what Christ will do. He is confident in what Christ will do. Second, he is confident in life or death. In life or death. Third, he is confident in God's plan. And fourth, he is confident in the health of the church. First, look at verse 19. We see here that he is confident in what Christ will do. He says, For I know... That through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. First, he is confident that Christ will exonerate him. Paul says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. He rejoices because he's confident. I know, he says. God will cause this situation to result in my deliverance. It may be translated as well as salvation. This will result in my salvation. It is translated that way uh, most of the time and many of the times. And it refers to salvation and the final judgment of God. When you look at this passage, we have to think through what, what exactly does it mean by deliverance. Is he referring merely and only to that future day? To a certain extent, yes. We know he's not referring, though, to his imprisonment. He is not saying that he knows for sure God is going to remove this trial from his life. He knows for sure that God is going to set him free. That's not what he was, he's saying, because throughout this entire passage, he intimates the fact that he does not know what is going to happen. Whether by life or by death, he says, to die is gain if I am to live in the flesh. I mean, he intimates that he has no idea what the outcome is going to be. But he is confident that God will indeed exonerate him, that he will be delivered, that there will be salvation. And this is a quote from the Greek translation of the book of Job. Job 13:16 Job says this will be my salvation. And what Job is referring to is my exoneration. He correctly understood that his terrible suffering was not God's punishment on him for sin. Like Job, Paul fully believed that God would one day deliver him both from his physical afflictions and from the false accusations. Paul had earlier assured the believers in Rome that God causes all things To work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. And now he applied that marvelous truth to his present reality. And that changes the way he thinks. Ultimately, Paul is confident whether he dies or not, 
Again, Christ will exonerate him. While he may be found guilty in Caesar's courtroom, he may be found guilty in Caesar's courtroom, when he stands before the Supreme Court, there will be no condemnation for him. And that he puts his confidence in. That while he may be found guilty here and now in this present court on that day in heaven when he stands before the judge, he will not be condemned. And in that, he rejoices. See, to be exonerated by Jesus Christ in heaven is a far superior and supreme desire for Paul than anything else. If he were to live, he's confident that he will be delivered from falling under the pressure of his imprisonment and trial. In the context, he mentions the fact that he does not want to be ashamed. And there's a sense there that his part of his deliverance is, is he is confident that God will sustain him. One of the great beauties of the, of the gospel is not only salvation, but also the power to sustain us in its proclamation and bearing up under the weight of its persecution. Now, on what does Paul base such confidence? Look at what he says. He says, I know that through, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, God is sovereign. And there is nothing that is going to thwart His salvific kingdom expanding work. And God incorporates the prayers of His people to accomplish His purposes. And through their prayers, He is confident of the Holy Spirit's help to succeed in honoring Christ in His trial as He sits in prison or He stands before Caesar. And this is very important for us to understand. Paul himself always depended on the Spirit of God. He always depended on the Spirit of God. Ephesians 3.20, he says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Colossians 1.28, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me. And Colossians 1.11, May you, speaking to the church, may you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. See where His focus was? You see where His confidence was? His confidence was in the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to hear that today. There are many of us who are not enjoying the ministry of the gospel. We we are not enjoying what it means to step out and speak the words of the gospel to another soul and to watch the words transform their lives. We are not in the ministry of, of, of counseling one another, the word of God, because we're resting in our own lack of ability. And that is not what we need to rest in. Christ has been, you gotta get over this. Christ has been using imperfect, sin-tainted, sin-cursed, sinful people for all of time to reach sin-cursed, sin-tainted, sinful people. And His program's not gonna change with you. And so what we need to hear is that we need to hear that the Holy Spirit indwells us and we don't have a spirit of timidity, but we have a spirit of power and we have a spirit of might and we put our confidence in Him. And the truth of the matter is, is that you don't want to put your confidence in anything else. 
Because think about this. If you think that you have the ability to do so, what's going to happen? You're going to muck it up. Why? Because you're going to get in there and you're going to think you got the glory. And every bit of ministry is not about my glory. It's not about your glory. It's about His. And that's why Paul says, I boast in my weakness. Why do I boast in my weaknesses? Because I'm excited about my weaknesses? No. I don't know about you. I'm never excited to talk about my weaknesses. That's not something I get up in the day. Why? I can't wait until I run into one of the pastors at church. And guys, let's talk about my weaknesses, please. That's not an exciting thing. But when the gospel transforms your mind and it causes you to think differently, guess what? You begin to get excited about your weaknesses. Why? Because they bring glory and honor to God. Because you know, if it happened, it had nothing to do with you. And, and, and that's the excitement. That's, that, that's what charges Paul. That, that, that's what gets him up in the morning. That's the best part of waking up. And he realizes that he's confident that God incorporates the prayers of his people and that he empowers him through the Holy Spirit. And even if Paul wanted to doubt, it's impossible for him to do it. Many of you know that I had the wonderful privilege of of teaching at a seminary in Kiev, Ukraine, and just so happened to be there when everything started going a little nutty. And and indeed, the temptation to fear, the temptation to run, the temptation to just buckle under the pressure, it's all there. But you know, you made it impossible. Time after time, I heard about people praying. Time after time, I would see something on Twitter, on something on Facebook. I would get emails about people praying. And I'm sitting here thinking, my goodness, with all these people praying, I, I, I'm trying to fear, but I can't. And this is beautiful fellowship that Paul is putting on display here because in the very beginning of of chapter one he talks about the fact that he's praying for the philippians and then here he acknowledges the fact that they're praying for him this is wonderful fellowship we pray for one another that's fellowship that's a part of it we love one another i love you hey i love you i love you more i love you more hey this is the competition in the rogers household we have a we have a plaque in our bedroom that says i love you more and when i go to bed at night i i tuck in the girls and i say i love you more and they don't want to be one-upped so they've come up with i love you mostest (laughs) can't trump that so let us never forget to pray for one another let us never forget to enjoy fellowship like that Pray for leaders, pray for pastors, pray for missionaries. Pray for one another because every single one of us have a gospel mission right where we live, work, and play. And you're tempted, you have struggles and you're tempted, you're tempted to fall, you're tempted to deny, you're tempted to be disloyal, you're tempted to distrust. We all are. And we need to pray for one another in our ministries, in our homes, in our ministries, in our neighborhoods, our ministries, at our workplaces, that the gospel might be proclaimed and, and that the kingdom would expand and that Christ would be made big of. And as he says in verse 20, he says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. The second thing Paul's confident that Christ will indeed do is that Christ will exalt himself. Paul says, it's my eager expectation and hope. And this is a compound word. And it means literally to stretch the head forward. When I was younger, I was so excited to begin playing drums. And my parents got me my first drum kit and it was lacking. 
there were a lot of things we needed to add to that kit. And so I made it a point to make a list of all the things I wanted to get. And I found a wonderful place in the Midwest. I have no idea. I don't remember its name. I just remember it had this catalog and I could point, select what I wanted, give them a call, order it. Right? Yeah, you remember last time you made an order by phone? Yeah. Um, And at that time, you know, there were not a lot of... Nowadays, it seems like delivery trucks are in our neighborhoods all the time. At this time, there is hardly ever a delivery truck in the neighborhood, and they shipped via UPS. And about one week after I would order that symbol or whatever it might be, I could hear that truck miles away. (laughs) Oh, right? And when I would hear that, I would run from the back of the, the house. I would run to the front. I would press my nose against the window and just wait for that UPS truck to come by. That is the picture. That's the picture that Paul is painting. That's the picture that he is portraying. Is that I am up on my tippy toes with my nose pressed against the window in expectation. And what is it that he expects? That I will not be at all ashamed, I will not be at all disappointed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored. Christ will indeed be honored. Again, on the negative side, he says, I don't want to be ashamed. I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm confident I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm confident that through your prayers and through the power of the Holy Spirit, I will indeed stand firm. I will not shrink from declaring the gospel with all boldness. Paul does not want to discredit or stain the testimony of Christ in any way. He wants only that Christ be honored, that Christ be glorified. He says, as always, Christ honored in my body. This is the constant melody of Paul's life. And it will be heard and it will be sung whether he lives or whether he dies. He treasures Jesus. He will run away from anything that would hinder his pursuit in Christ. This is why he denies himself, because his self will get in the way. That's why those of you who train for marathons, you run away from donut shops. You run away from bakeries. And I don't know how any of you stand running on the Monon when you have to pass bubs in that glorious smell. But you run away because it will hinder you from your treasured pursuit. When we feel our hearts and our inclinations starting to desire something other than Christ, do we correct it in that moment? Do we correct it in that moment? See, this is is not an issue of like, well, I should be ashamed that maybe I'm not living Christ the way I should. No, 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 no. This is what it is. Christ is the best way to live. And I want you to hear that. And just let us get rid of anything that would hinder that pursuit. That's the idea because He is to be so treasured. He is to be so treasured. He is to be so loved. One, He deserves it. But two, there is honestly no better way to live. To live for Christ and to die is gain. And that brings us to verse 21. And the second thing, the reason why He will rejoice is He is absolutely confident in life or death. Again, he doesn't know his future. He may be set free. He may not. He may be executed. He, he simply does not know. But he does know this. For to me, to live is Christ. 
and to die is gain. Now, this is a striking statement in English, but it's even more striking in Greek. Literally, it reads, without a supplied verb, it reads, for to me to live Christ, for to me to die gain. Okay, then that would be striking. And what makes it even more striking is the fact that to live rhymes with to die. And that Christ rhymes with gain. So not only is it short and succinct, but it rhymes. And this would catch their attention. You think about the different things that you remember of commercials of that nature. And it's those short, concise, and oftentimes rhyming advertisements that just stick in your head. I'm sitting at the baseball park yesterday and I'm looking at a chain link fence. And on the fence, right right there on the fence, it, it has fence makes sense. I'm never going to get that out of my head. <laughs> you know, I have no need of a chain link fence. But I tell you, if I ever do, I'm going to look for the, fa- the fence that makes sense. And the point, and that's the whole point, is that this passage, this verse, this very verse, it sums up all of Christian life, and it would strike the reader. And they would take notice, and they would remember. It's a great passage to remember, a great verse to remember, because it really sums up what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's absolutely identical to what he says in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Christ is what motivates Him. He wants Christ exalted. He wants Christ to be made big of. This is the best part of waking up for Paul. If he awakes to life to pursue Christ and to make Him known, Listen to the way Paul talks in his letters about his relationship to Christ. These are samplings from a few of Paul's writings. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. For I will not venture to speak of anything except that Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with Him and its blessings. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which is given me by working of His power. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointed me to His service. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal Christ, eternal glory. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That is a man of God who lives for Christ because he knows to die is gain. And the reason why to die is gain is because for the person he lives for, he knows that when he dies, he will see him face to face. 
See, when you live for something and you see its reality, it is gain to you. The reason to die is gain is because he lives for Christ. And when he dies, he knows that he will be and see Christ face to face. And he will be in his presence. For right now, Christ is with him through the Holy Spirit. But in that day, he will be in the very presence of Christ. As 1 John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we, what will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Again, it's, it's all about Christ. Whatever heaven is like and whatever is there, it's inconsequential, because the main issue is that Christ is there. The other aspect of that is that heaven is the place where Christ is perfectly exalted. And in that, Paul rejoices because in heaven, Christ is perfectly exalted and he so desires Christ to be exalted and glorified that he rejoices in death knowing that in heaven, Christ is perfectly glorified. And this is what makes heaven so awesome. And we must remember that Christ indeed is our life. Throughout Philippians, Paul emphasizes this point. In chapter 1, he says, Our holiness is in Christ. Our grace and peace are in Christ. Our completeness is in Christ. In chapter 2, our example is Christ. In chapter 3, our joy is in Christ. We rely on nothing but Christ. He is our greatest treasure. We commune and fellowship in His suffering and resurrection. We press on to know Him better. In Philippians 4, He is our sufficiency for every need, which He meets out of His rich supply He is indeed our all in all, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, and to Him be glory forever. Are we living for Christ? And again, not not so much that we should be necessarily ashamed if we're not totally, but just to ask our question or ask ourselves, why? Why aren't we? What is it in this life that is so attractive to us that somehow seems to pale in comparison to Christ? Or or somehow we treasure it more than Christ? That somehow Christ pales in comparison to them? What, What is that in our life? And it's just a great question for us to ask our Lord. Christ, help us. Lord, help us. What is it that I'm valuing in this life more than I value You? What do I treasure in this life more than I treasure You? You know, and it doesn't matter what we're doing. It doesn't matter what we have as long as we have Christ. As long as we have Christ. You know, uh, Jenny and I have been married 20 years and In those 20 years, we started off making it a point to have a weekly date night. And we've done pretty well on that. But it's been amazing how our date nights have evolved. Because 
early on in our marriage, it seemed like it really mattered what we did and where we went. Like that really mattered to us. But over time, where we are and what we do, it really doesn't matter as much. Just as long as we're together. We just want to be in each other's presence. We just want to enjoy one another, the companionship that we have. Do we have that kind of a heart for Jesus? That that it doesn't matter so much what I'm doing. It doesn't matter so much where I am. It doesn't matter so much what I have. But what matters to me is do I have Christ? And every single day, we have choices to make, whether to live for Christ or to live for self. And there's a, a diagram that we often use in our soul care ministry to help illustrate and to help all of us just get a picture. It's, it's a creatively named diagram called the Y diagram. But what it illustrates is that everything we do comes from our heart, it, it comes from our motives, it comes from our desires, it comes from our wants. What do we treasure? What do we want most? And at every point in our life, we have a decision to make. We can choose to follow ourselves, or we can choose to follow God. And, and the truth of the matter is, it's a lot easier to follow self. It, it doesn't take much effort to do what you want to do. It doesn't take much effort. But it does take effort to follow God. And again, why we need to be continually praying for each other. Why we need to continue to exhort one another. Why we need to continue to minister to one another. It's because we're all prone to go the other direction. But if in our hearts, for to me to live is Christ, then we will choose the right and we will continue to choose that. And we will continue to choose that. And we will continue to choose that. And as Second Peter chapter 1, 3 and following remind us that as we continue to add to our faith, especially that of self-control and perseverance, as we continue to do this, it will render us not effective. It will render us instead effective in our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Living for Christ is a mindset. It's a motivation. It's a conviction. And Paul rejoices in the midst of his imprisonment because of this motivation and because of this conviction. This permeates his life. That is why in the intimate thoughts of his mind, he confesses to the Philippians that he not only rejoices over what is happening now, but he rejoices and is confident in what will indeed happen. He is confident in that Christ will, what Christ will do. He's confident in either living or dying. And the third thing in which... He puts his confidence is God's plan. He is confident in God's plan. He says in verse 22, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Little translation, that is more better. Much more better. That's what he means. It's an emphatic statement. And this is the best thing I could ever think of. This is the best way I could imagine my life going. And he's confident in God's plan. God will do one of two things. I mean, one, he will produce fruit if he lives, but he will provide a warm welcome if he dies. 
He will produce food, fruit if he lives, but he'll provide a warm welcome if he dies. And because of that, what Paul basically recognizes is this. God is a generous God. There's actually two options here, and guess what? Both are really good. If I live, that means fruitful labor. That means I get to continue to proclaim the gospel. I get to continue to see lives transformed. Because guess what? I don't get to do that in heaven. The ministry of the gospel to lost people is for here and now. And there's an expediency to this. I know that if I stay, I will continue the course. I will continue doing what I love to do. And that is to make Christ known, to make him, make him big and to help people and just cry out to people, please be reconciled to Christ. And to present and, and just direct them to the cross. But there's tension here. When he says that I'm hard pressed, he literally means that I'm, I'm actually between two immovable objects and I'm not sure which direction to go. I'm hard pressed. This is like a good mom who has multiple children with multiple events at the same time. Right? Which one shall I choose? They're all great. They're all my children. Which one will I choose? That's the idea. That's what Paul is saying. I'm hard-pressed between the two. I want to go. I want to depart. I want to be loosed from this world. And I want to be with Christ. Because that is much more better. I want to be there. But then he goes on to say in verse 24 through 26. And really Paul shows us his selfless heart. In verse 24 through 26, he puts his confidence in the health of the church. He says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. In other words, he's hard-pressed because he knows to be with Christ, to die and to be with Him is awesome. It is great. And for him personally, that would be the greatest thing to happen to him. But he also knows his love for the church, his love for the people in Philippi. And he knows that if he were to remain, that it would be useful for them. He sees the good for the Philippians if he were to remain and to live. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Yes, he wants to leave. He doesn't think he's indispensable, but he's motivated by his love for them. Paul would gladly suffer for the salvation of others and the maturity of the church. Convinced of this, he says in verse 25, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Again, what excites him about the the prospect of this persuasion of thinking he might actually stay is that he might be a part of the progress in their faith and in their joy, that they would become more like Christ and they would enjoy doing so. And that excites Paul. See, this is what excites me so much about pastoral ministry and in particular discipleship ministry because I enjoy watching the people of God make progress in becoming more like Christ and enjoying it. There is no greater joy in this life than to live for Christ that we might become like Christ that one day we will be with Christ. Oh my goodness, that's an incredible life, right? Right? There is no greater life. 
So that in me, he says in verse 26, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Again, his concern, his focus has nothing to do with the fact that you guys will applaud me that I somehow got out of prison. But instead, you will glorify the name of Jesus Christ because he released me, he exonerated me, and he has empowered me to proclaim the gospel and to continue to do so in your midst for your progress and joy in the faith. Glorify the name of Jesus Christ. Because for Paul, to live is Christ. To die is gain. That reality has been made possible because of the gospel. And that reality has completely changed and transformed the way Paul thinks, the way Paul feels, what Paul desires, And it has completely given him a reoriented perspective on his imprisonment. Let me close with a few stanzas from this Puritan prayer. It's called, God be all. O God whose will conquers all, there is no comfort in anything apart from enjoying you and being engaged in your service. You are all in all. And all enjoyments are what to me you make them and no more. I rejoice to think that all things are at your disposal, and it delights me to leave them there. Then prayer turns holy into praise, and all I can do is to adore and bless you. Father, you are our all in all. And we are so grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ that transform and completely reorients our life and our existence. Father, that we too can be absolutely and 100% confident of what You will do, of whether we live or whether we die, of Your plan and of the health of Your church. You will indeed glorify Yourself you will indeed be glorified. And Lord, we long for the day that we will see you face to face where you will be perfectly glorified, honored, and praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.